everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Church Leaders Roundtable. My name is Darren Calhoun. My pronouns are he, him. I am coming to you from Chicago. And with us today, we have Kevin. Hey there. We have Sarah. Hey. We have Stacy. Hey, folks. And our very special guest today is someone who I have known online for a while now. And I think what happened was we were in several chat like chat threads where somebody was getting dragged for white supremacy or Christian supremacy or something. And you know how sometimes you just connect with somebody and their energy and, and their, their clap back. Uh, and so I believe that's how we got connected. Who knows? Somebody will probably drop a comment somewhere and tell us how it actually happened. But until then, that's our origin story. and We're sticking with it. And so I'd love to introduce and welcome Irene Cho to the Church Leaders Roundtable podcast um, as we continue our series about race and the church um, and just thinking about who we are, um, what is happening in the church, and then a little bit about what we can do with it. Hey, Irene, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. I'm yes. excited to be here. So glad you are here. Um, just to get started, what we've been doing is talking a little bit about ourselves. So um, what, what would you have us to know about um, who you are, um, who your people are, and you can answer that in whatever way that makes sense to you um, and where you come from. Those are hefty, big intro questions. They um, are. I just go right for it. Darren goes hard. Yeah. Therapy here. Um, I feel, you know, as somebody who has had a lot of drama in their life, it, it's like, you know, when you go on a first date and the older, I, I'm an older bride, right? So I got married. It's five years going to be this year, this September. Um, so I was 42 when I got married. Um, and so, you know, when you go on blind dates when you're 38 and you have a whole shit ton of drama in your background, the intro gets longer and longer as it just the more <laughs> dates you go on, the more annoying it gets. Because I'm like, can we just fucking fast forward? I don't want to do this intro bit again. Can I just send you my bio before we get started? Um, Perfect. <laughs> um, <laughs> so all that to say, I am uh, identify as she, her. Um, I do still consider myself to be a Jesus believing, if we're going to put that under the title of Christian, um, you know, category, I don't find offense to that in the sense that probably is why I'm so angry at the church, because I still consider myself to be part of that world. So I'm not quite in the evangelical camp, um, or per se, I don't identify with that. But I'm sure my rants online and in person very much come across like I am ex-evangelical. But really, an ex-boyfriend of mine had said to me, you know, I realize you rant about people and you're angry about people because you actually have hope for people versus I, meaning him, rants and is angry about people because he just hates all people. So really, I feel that that is very accurate of a description that I might seem to hate you and I'm very angry at you and want to slap you around a bit. But really, it's because I love you. Um, and, and as an Enneagram nine wing eight, I feel that, you know, my, my reprimands come with warm towels that I can wrap you with. Um, 
Yes, for my the friend, warm towels. <laughs> my friend Dan Whitehudge always says, you you say things so truthfully, and yet you don't get your ass fired. And I don't know how you do that. And I, I say it's really my nightmare that, that helps me ride that line so close where I'm bitch slapping you, but also somehow making you feel like you're really loved as I'm doing it. <laughs> Very Jesus turning over tables. I like it. Right? Yeah. That's kind of my jam um, of who I am if you meet me. Um, yeah, so there's that. So I know that I might seem very angry and scary online, in particular, especially if you follow me on Twitter, because I do all the things ranting on Twitter. Um, very real and honest on that platform. But, you know, at the end of the day, I am a huge empath. I really love people. I want the best for people. I have hope in people's best that they can live to their fullest um you know of who they are to have purpose to help one another out to be connected um all the things as we have lots of laughter and fun and adventures together and and really um hold each other in pain a lot of my story you know i am a survivor and a rape survivor my senior pastor from high school was my rapist. Um, my parents got divorced when I was very young. Um, my father was an alcoholic and a drug abuser, but yet was still very gentle and a provider for our family. So there's a lot of me that kind of is in conflict where it's not fully, you know, there's like, there's been so much love as there's been so much trauma. And I think that's the tension and space that I hold, which ironically, you know, the company I'm trying to launch called the in-between is really that liminal space. And I think that's probably both a reflection of my personality as well as my life experience that of all the, what I feel most of the growth that we have that happens in life and in our personhood is in that liminal in-between space and so how can we how can we not skip that part which most people want to skip that part you have the enlightenment and you want to be the professional right this how right. Hollywood movies set it up this is why I love books so much versus movies I do love movies so much and I'm tired and lazy these days so I watch a lot more movies than I do read books but uh, so much of what I love about novels is that the growth that happens right it's so much of that in between space that when we get to the conclusion it's so satisfying but um, that moves a lot more quickly when you watch films because you have two hours to just kind of pump it out and so I think that tense that tension that space that liminal liminality is is really my my sweet spot of where I love to dwell in so yeah good too and I appreciate you bringing so much of yourself you know to the table um I think I think it's important like to just I was thinking about this the other day of to acknowledge that our story is ours and we can choose to share it and 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 bring it wherever we want or we can keep it to ourselves and no one has no one deserves it no one is necessarily entitled to it so I count it as a gift when you when you bring that um I'm curious um one of the things we've been looking at is uh, our some of our earliest experiences, and uh, we we've been asking the question: When did you first realize that you had a race? This is a harder question for me. Um, a colleague and who I consider now a dear friend of mine. Um, 
she is black American was we both work at Fuller together um, and she and I had had a conversation how after coming to Fuller she really started um, growing in her awareness of her womanness in her leadership um, because her whole life she had really been focused on growing and understanding her identity as a black person as a black woman um, and I was saying how my journey was the exact opposite. I spent most of my ministry career, which started in 92, really, um, because I served in an immigrant, Korean immigrant church setting predominantly, all of my church contexts um, as a pastor, um, was that it was so much about finding my validity and my worth and my um you know, being deserving to take up space as a woman because of how patriarchal and, and misogynistic that context was. And so it wasn't, I don't think until I want to even say 2000 and probably 2005 question mark ish when I started to ask well, what does it mean that I'm not white what does it mean that I'm Asian even because of the fact you know having grown up in spaces where like in New York it was really painful I was in Scarsdale um, which is about 40 minutes out of the city heavily Jewish like my school was 85% Jewish we had four Asian kids um, one other Korean kid um, one Japanese and one South Asian and then we had some exchange students from Japan who worked whose families worked at the Tokyo factory right and so it wasn't a lot of support in that. Um, and so you just wanted to be as white as possible, right? And, you know, you're growing up in the 80s and the 90s, everything representative to you is white. My favorite history was European history. Like, you know, I share all the time. I greatly, I, I know everything you can know about Queen Elizabeth. I don't know anything at all about any of the queens that exist in Korea or, you know, my heritage and country, mother countries, you know, so to say. So I think when I started to um, engage in more conversations about urban ministry, you know, and diving into that subject matter and kind of going into those social circles where we began to talk about race um, and ethnicity and culture, I started to... Yeah. And I, I really, I think some of it, it was slow moving because when you move from that environment where it's all white to Los Angeles, where all of a sudden all of my Korean students were so into being grand. It was all KP, KP, Korean pride, Korean pride. And these kids who barely speak any Korean would be watching, you know, Korean dramas, listening to Korean music before any of it was popular. And I was like, what is going on? Right. Yeah. And so kind of repressing all of that, but as I was entering into racial dialogues, um, started to unpack what it meant that I was Asian. All still very much with like self-hatred um, and, you know, internalized racism against my own people, very much against Asian, you know, culture, 
being ashamed of it. I didn't grow up eating Korean food until high school. And I only started eating Korean food because I didn't have a car and my mom was the choir director. And so I was stuck at church for hours and hours on end and I was starving. And so you know, I, I'd have to walk like our church was not downtown Philly. So, you know, and I would get in trouble. My mom wouldn't let me walk anywhere because it was so dangerous in Philadelphia or whatever. And so, <laughs> you know, we'd have Korean food and I, that's all there was. And so it was just like, I was forced to kind of pick and choose. And I remember when my grandma visited me when it was in high school and I was eating kimchi because I didn't grow up eating kimchi. And she said to my mom in Korean, she's like, oh my gosh, she's eating kimchi. She's a human being now, you know? <laughs> and so it was a lot of that, you know, starting to grow into, okay, what does it mean that I'm Asian? My mom used to say it all the time and I hated it when she would say it. She's like, I don't care what you want to be. You're not white. God created you with an Asian face and you, you know, with Asian looks and that's how it is. And so you could try to deny it all you want to, but you're Korean. Um, and I would be so angry because again, I wanted to be as white and, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed as possible. Um, and it's ironic. I have blonde hair now um, in the midst of all of my racial justice fight and you know, proud to be Asian American, but honestly, the 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 thing, the blondish gray, is because my grays are coming in, and I'm I'm the laziest vein person in the world. And so, <laughs> how can I make it so that as my hair grows out, it looks like my grays are, you know, like mixed in with that? So really, it's like a pragmatic solution to all of this. Um, we love it. Having a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a slow, like I'm in typical nine, Enneagram nine form, slow process, slow journey of like really intentionally trying to figure all of that out. Um, and I would, I would still say, I would say it wasn't even until maybe about six to seven years ago, I really began to embrace and love and be proud that I was Asian American and that I was Korean um, and really regretted not learning how to, you know, read and write Korean well. I can speak it okay because my mom and I basically dialogue in Korean. Um, so I, I know some stuff a little bit better, you know, than some other friends who I know didn't grow up with the language at all. Um, and, you know, I, because of my ministry context, as I somewhat had asked some aspirations to do a doctoral study, really wanted to ask the question, like, what's happening with you know, Korean young people, Korean American young people, in particular with their faith development, um, you know, now that we are here 20 some years later after Helen Lee wrote her article, you know, about the silent exodus that was happening, which we talk about in youth ministry world now. But this was the big question we've been asking in Asian American context for 20, 30 years now at this point. So, yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey. Yeah, I'm I'm curious. You You, you mentioned some really, really profound things of. Having a mom who who is Korean and speaks Korean and um, the food was important, but also growing up in this uh, pretty much all, almost all white context 
and to the point that you were in in your adult years before you like really began to, to to wrestle with that. So I'm curious, what was church like for you? Like what what was it like racially? What was the music like? What kind of what was the culture of your churches growing up? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and if you look at a lot of academic studies and a lot of academic research, um, it shows in particular for Asian American students how essential the church was for their identity formation. It was a lot of the only safe places in neighborhoods and communities that were predominantly white. Um, and a lot of Asian families would go into these white neighborhoods because again, education was such a high value. And so they would, you know, work long hours to provide for the family so that they could pay the real estate taxes in these very wealthy upper scale white neighborhoods, which was also, you know, the story that for myself, that my mom as a single mom would still intentionally live in these very, you know, prominent neighborhoods. Um, and so, you know, the church was the reason I started speaking Korean. Um, we didn't go to church for a while. My mom fell away from her faith when right as the divorce and separation was happening. So from upper elementary through middle school, I didn't go to church. Um, and I didn't, we didn't attend anything. And then in high school, we went to, um, uh, an immigrant church. It was Pentecostal. So it was like full blown Korean, like all the Koreans crying out prayer style, the fasting, the yes. like, you know, the transferring of shamanistic belief onto your Christian faith, like I full blown, like all of that. And so, Interesting. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was not Presbyterian at all whatsoever. It was none of that stuff. It was, so there was, there was some organic connection to that, those grassroots spirituality, um, practices, spiritual practices that exist, um, in Asian culture. So, you know, for me, it's, it hasn't been a far-fetched journey to, be connected to spiritual, you know, um, to spiritual concepts and, and experiences, um, Eastern medicine and, and the philosophical belief of holistically understanding your body and how we're connected to the earth and this, there's spirit everywhere. Like all of that wasn't very far-fetched for me. And also my mom, who did not grow up in the church, she was nominal Buddhist, um, somewhat interested in some spiritual things. My dad's side of the family, um, my great grandfather was one of the first Christian converts, um, in the 1907 Korean revival that happened. And so one of the first pastors, you know, to be in Korea. Um, so I have that lineage passed down on my dad's side of the family, but my mom, not at all. So she, um, in, in times of struggle and distress, even as she is, was, she had a very, my, my father grew up somewhat Presbyterian, but my mom had a very powerful spiritual encounter, like very much Paul road to Damascus, like overhaul. And she's a one wing too. So I, she says very readily, that's the only way she would actually probably have ever come to faith to know Jesus. Uh, like it just blew away all logic and kind of all, you know, the things in that sense. Um, and so because of that tradition, 
even though she in in those moments would have such deep faith with God, she would at times when she was very much struggling, would still go to fortune tellers. She studied um, Chinese astrology when she was younger. And so she knows a lot about it, you know, um, so I probably have somewhat of a very layman's working knowledge of Chinese astrology and times and dates and how that all lines up and, you know, all of the things. So I grew up a very mixed bag. Like yeah. I didn't have this set type of, you know, context that really boxed me in, which again, I feel like is part of my personality, but also like the nature versus nurture thing that my upbringing was this very mixed bag. And then when I got to college, which was a very dispensational, um, conservative evangelical college, um, it was great for me because I grew up in this very spiritual environment where it was all about prayer, no biblical teaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Been there, done that. And then I get to the school where, I mean, my freshman year, I was like a sponge just trying to learn all, you know, all I could um, about my biblical scholarship. And, you know, I just, it was, it was wonderful. And I've always said, I feel like I've gotten the best of both worlds without, and because of that, I, I didn't ever really fall into this fundamental kind of, you know, um, dogmatic mindset because of the fact that I, it's just kind of been this whole, we all have the answers and none of us have the answers kind of mixed bag where there's truth and so many different sub contexts, you know, that you could be a part of. Yeah. So that's a bit of, you know, I think why, even though I didn't really name my Asian American experience growing up until later as an adult, it was always underlined, you know, somewhere and influencing me so that when I started to like recognize all of it and name it, it was just so blatantly obvious. It wasn't something that was like, Oh, I didn't even realize that it was more of like, Oh, the label. Okay. That goes there. Yeah. There's a name for that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's been more of that kind of understanding and awareness versus an actual, like, Oh my gosh, I'm Asian. When the hell did that happen? (laughs) Like, (laughs) Not that like, what? (laughs) So yeah. Good. Awesome. I'm I, one more curiosity. Uh, I, a few of us have some some Pentecostal backgrounds and um, I think all of us have some form of church trauma. Um, mm-hmm. I won't won't lead us too deep into that path at this point, but I'm curious, did you ever feel or where if you did, where did you feel tension um, around the different cultures of whether it's being in a Pentecostal church for, versus a very um, more reserved or, or liturgical type setting? Like, did you did you have conflicts there? Oh, yeah. OK, so I'm an INFJ. OK, like hardcore J. So um, <laughs> I was at a church, I visited a church plant, a friend, uh, you know, a a friend was planting a church and he's South Asian, he's Indian. And um, very, again, some Pentecostal roots, even though he had a fuller degree. And they were doing uh, the Holy Spirit song. I can't stand that song because of the fact that um, of how Pentecostals, we just freaking repeat the chorus over and over just and over again Holy for 50 Spirit, minutes. You are welcome. Here. Oh one. my gosh, right? Oh my and gosh, so I love that 
that song. Like, oh my god! Just my pen across but the room. Because, like, because forty-five of the repetitiveness. <laughs> I'm like, get to the freaking point. Like, so okay. I have two. I have two hilarious stories. So, <laughs> so there's that. Okay. So he was there, and we sang that song, and then he's like, always oh, in this wonderful. Can't we do this for forever and just stay here all afternoon? And in my head, I'm like. Fuck no! I have to go because it's like twelve fifty, and service is supposed to end at one, and we're not even at the end not of worship service. Not even in the end of, end of and worship. I live oh. for those days. Oh my I gosh! That stuff. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so. So there, I can laugh at it now because it's endearing to me because it's like part of my childhood and I'm not a part of that, you know, world on a daily basis. I'm not trying to function as a leader and like get things going and, you know, all of that. So I think, and again, a lot of it is I have come to learn to love elements of that instead of what, you know, your question is, which is I grew up in a, or at least I was trained in a very white evangelical institution where worship is from this hour to this hour and you have your curricula all set up and you know, you, you're prepared, you write it ahead of time. My, my, um, homiletics professor was so adamant. Your sermon is 20 minutes long. You've written it all out. You've spent 40 hours prepping it. You have it memorized. You're good to go, right? Like it's all of that really rigid training, which my J personality, oh, it's so tinselating and I love it and I embrace it. (laughs) And then I go to this, you know, I go to these Pentecostal spaces where one time we had worship. It was with high schoolers. It was at a youth conference and we finished worship on time. It was like 930. The food was all set up. All the cup ramen was like all ready to go. The water was all boiled. It's time for snack. We were going to give them an hour and a half to like play games and do all that and go to bed at freaking 11 o'clock because I'm freaking tired. Right. And then the senior, the senior pastor comes up because this is in Las Vegas. And all of a sudden was like, we asked him to close prayer because we wanted to respect that we were, you know, in his church space. And he starts saying how, and the kids spent a great amount of time praying. We did worship. It was great. There was, they were so blessed. It was such a wonderful 10 out of 10 as a youth leader evaluation, right? (laughs) And he goes up and he's like, you did not pray enough. God would be ashamed of you and we need to pray more because there are vampires and I'm not even joking. There are vampires and demons roaming around the streets. And he was talking about hookers and he was talking about prostitutes and like pimps. And that's what he was equating it. And we need to pray for their souls. So like, you know, we were warriors for Jesus. And I was just upstairs in the sound room, you know, what the fuck is happening? Like, So then I was like, okay, okay. It's just 20 minutes, 20 minutes minutes he'll lead this prayer it was 9 30 you know what time we finished that prayer 12 45 12 45 that was a short i wanted to go i wanted to go go down i oh my gosh oh my gosh and these poor kids these poor wonderful kids did they keep praying yes they did 
they were nice and obedient because Asian kids grow up with an authoritarian figure and, you know, a lot of filial piety where we have to be good little obedient children. And I'm over here as a youth leader going, fuck this shit. So if you're talking about trauma, I have oodles of stories of that stuff, right? But also then on the flip side, when I go to like some services, my Pentecostal side, I'm like, why, why are we not crying? Like, why are we not crying? <laughs> right? And so... How can we Does do this? Raise your hands. <laughs> <laughs> and how like clapping, like what's happening, right? All, all the yeah. things. And so, you know, my husband really wants like we when we're trying to find a church and he like, okay, let's go to some Episcopalian churches. Let's we went to a Methodist church. And I'm like, this is nice. Like, I like the liturgy. It's very, you know, it's so sweet and it's so reflectiony. And I, I love it. But like also, can we spend 20 minutes crying out to Jesus and like letting out all of our tears and agony? and pain and you know pounding of the ground so it's like you know I do this exercise with young people when I speak at retreats and stuff um, I do this prayer exercise where you know we have these two questions posed on um, how can I um, how can I know Jesus more and how can how does Jesus know me so thoroughly I, I forget the questions they're up there and then I have sections by which they pray over you know their social physical mental emotional and then you know I list what falls in each category, you know, and I tell them, so you can go to these corners of the room, like they're symbolic, or you can stay at your space. So I give all these parameters to try to integrate and intersect, intersect like all of it. And I, I have the song that I play, you know, over playing so that the band can also, you know, participate in this. And the poor band isn't because I also was in college band and had to lead worship and keep playing for the five and a half hours that you would do prayer time in this Pentecostal service that you're doing. And oh my gosh, playing keyboard and standing up for five and a half hours is so exhausting, right? Or playing guitar, which I would have calluses on my fingers. So that the point that my finger would be ingrown. So I don't want any of that. So I play music so that the worship band can also participate and they could go to these corners. They can pray as partners and pray over each other. They could do it as their little small groups if they wanted to. So I give them all the options. I tell them, if you don't cry at all, that's okay. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not blessing you. If you cry snot, tears all over the place, that's yes, also for the okay. Snot cry. Right? Like just, <laughs> and I tell them, if you're done after 20 minutes and you need to go outside and have snacks, that's okay. If you want to stay in here or if you have snacks, you want to come back. Like I just give all these oh my parameters. Gosh, can you be my worship? Yeah. And, and, then, so, and it's range. Like it's gone from one hour to for some groups, right? Like middle schoolers usually are a little shorter to there was even like, I spoke at this assemblies of God, um, Latino, Latino, um, congregation. It was a uh, Southern California assemblies of God. And it was just like every week they did it for five hours, you know, and they had wow. a lot to pray about. And these, they were all led by high school kids and like hardly any of the kids would be outside or they would again, sit outside, come back in. And I would tell them you could sit and listen to the music. A lot of times it's about listening to God. Don't feel like you have to speak all the time. Again, very Pentecostal where you have to talk all the time. Maybe you shut the fuck up and like listen to God a little bit. during <laughs> All the time. So, you know, I, I think again, I, I have felt as a pastor, how can I integrate the best of both worlds where, you know, I've learned these structures and systems, but also believe and trust that, you know, 
at times, how is the Holy Spirit leading you? Um, you know, and maybe you have to chuck the curriculum for that day and, and listen to where God's moving. And so I'm not so Jay where I'm like, Oh my God, this is not on the schedule. What are we going to do? But also I'm not where a lot of my Pentecostal friends are like, I didn't prep because the Holy Spirit is going to inspire me as I go up on stage. I'm like, no dude, like <laughs> not at all, dude. That's hey, not how you're just this works, rambling man. and having no point, dude. I've worked with worship pastors who are like that. Like they hate planning and hate even just uh, giving you an idea of the songs that they're going to be playing. I'm like, no, just give me, I need to put something into slides. I need to like prep to say something in between. Like I need something, give me something. If you repeat a song, if you add a song, that's fine. Just like, give me, give me like a roadmap, but just to, just to go off of. Please. I say this all the time. I, I think I've I've always been like this, and now I'm trying to integrate it. I need to know, like, when you go to Disneyland, I want to know the map. Where are we gonna go? Yeah. I don't want to like. I have a friend we would go with, and she would be like, "Let's go over there," and then let's go over there, and let's go over there. I'm like, no, because then we're fucking not gonna be eating until three o'clock, and that's <laughs> stupid. Okay, so like, let's be pragmatic. We're spending a hundred freaking dollars at Disneyland, and I want to get the most of my money, and that's my Koreanness. Like, I'm gonna get my bang for my buck, bitches. So like, <laughs> let's map this out, and if we decide to chuck the plan, I'm also fine with that. But there can't be a no plan plan. Okay, we can chuck the plan, but there has to be a plan. Throw out the window. We exactly. gotta have a plan yeah. to, to forget some about type yeah. of balance and in the middle. I like I I feel that I feel that because then we can know how far off the plan we veered, even if we stacked hands on veering off the plan, right? right. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. These things, so. these are important, mm-hmm. important things. <laughs> Very passionate about planning. I was an event Clearly. Been there. Welcome, I'm curious. Welcome to the uh, event planners podcast. Yep, here we go. We can do it. <laughs> Former wedding planner here. <laughs> Everyone was like, "Your wedding went so smoothly. Like we had to time the sunset. We had 25 minutes to make sure we got the sunset. And any of you, if you go to my Facebook, you will see my wedding photos." I got my bang from my butt, bitches. I dropped that money and I got it. And my fo- my photographer was featured in a wedding magazine with my photograph because we had 20 minutes to execute this. And I was like, ain't no bitches going to be ruining shitting on my wedding. <laughs> the photographer in me is deeply appreciative of you considering the light at sunset and then planning your day accordingly. I thank you. I, was, I appreciate you. Public speaker in me is appreciative of somebody finally saying, "Hey, you've got exactly this much time, not three to five minutes. Like you've got four minutes and twenty six right. seconds. Period." Right. I love it. Yeah. Practice. Do a run through several times before you get on stage. Oh, <laughs> the run through. I I I, I miss my run through days. The run the run through just means you have. Uh, lack of faith like <laughs> that was I love run through like oh I, I was in a large evangelical church and we had the run through and it may not have exactly what the service was but if you weren't doing it pretty much the way the service was going to be there was going to be a whole like talk <laughs> about it so I went from this 
super charismatic, like Pentecostal. Like I didn't plan out my songs. And this is back in the days. This ages me. This is back in the days when we were using the film projectors. Yes, the overhead. Yes. Overheads. So I love it. Like my overhead person was like like five minutes before service was pulling the songs for uh, me. It was like 10 minutes before service that I would plan the songs, right? Sadist. And yeah, but then, so I went from that to ELCA church where I planned my music for like three months out and we had to do it according to like mine was a contemporary service. So we weren't as concerned with the liturgy and what season, but there were seasons that I couldn't, we couldn't sing like hallelujah. Um, Like, you know, so it was like, I had to be mindful about that kind of thing. And it was the weirdest thing ever to go from like no planning at all to like, all of a sudden I'm planning months out in advance. And I was like, at the time I was like, what happens if like we get to that week and I don't want to sing this song? What if like, what if I'm in the service and I want to do a different song and I can't. Right. So you want to co- you want the best of both because yeah. the Holy Spirit. I it, I don't right. deny that you have to sometimes chuck the plan, right? So, but you again, you want to know how much of the plan you're chucking so that you could later then add on to that. Also, the the transparency overhead. Okay, all of you young people who are listening to this, you you don't know the pain. Okay, so you're you're doing a revival night or whatever, and then the <laughs> band is ad libbing. Okay, and so yes. the person doing the projector and at the end of the night of this four-hour service it the transparency is just all over the floor because yes. the person so desperately is trying to find the proper song they don't have time to find there's it not in. a song for it right they don't have well, they it, don't have it's time not like the band is saying all right guys next up we're gonna we're gonna play no. this song no they just started singing and then like you as the i mean you still you still get it with yep. like pro presenter or whatever where you're like wait what what lyrics are these what song does this fit right with? and and with oh i have i have program pro presenter in real time i get the other song so it's all right. right but the transparency won't they just don't search far for the transparency right they're just rapidly flipping through and then like putting it on oh the sweat the sweat, the sweat of like the sweat. trying to it's, it's anointed sweat Also, as a worship leader, I'm terrible with lyrics. So I I can't like ad lib all of that. Again, this is why I like preparation because I'm terrible. I'm like, wait, what song is that? Something, something, something with the Holy, as you just display, as I just displayed. What is the Holy Spirit song? Something with the Holy Spirit and it repeats. Okay. Oh, so going back to that. So the repetitiveness of that song where they for five hours will just sing Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. They never do like one of the other songs. It's just always a song that has two lines in it where they repeat over and over again. And I want to shoot my brains out at the end of four hours. So. Oh, Lord. I'm giving I'm giving y'all a that's giving the, giving the 100. I'm giving right. a stank face. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um as we as we're looking at like the tensions and the church and so forth um you you have this very strong voice, this very uh very adamant stance against the supremacy of whiteness that I absolutely love. Where did that come from? 
So I think I, I again, very much leaned into my nineness for a long time. I wanted to find the middle ground and the space and really help learning. And, you know, it was very wonderful and pleasant and idealistic and birds flying and dressing you kind of Disney, you know, type of painting. Does that does that resonate with any of the church cultures you were in as well? Oh, uh, probably, you know, again, the teaching that Jesus wanted to love all and it was all pleasantries and, and just all of that narrative. I bought into it. I hook, line and sinker definitely bought into it. And then, but I think prior to, you know, as I was doing urban ministry and my social justice elements started to increase. And along with that, my seminary training, I would say probably in about 2000, maybe 99, I took my exegesis of the gospels class. Um, and for the first time, I felt like I really dove into Jesus's teachings. And I was like, holy fucking shit. The church today, because this is at the pinnacle of mega church, Saddleback, Willow Creek, you know, all these big churches, um, building their own cathedrals, patting themselves on the back, you know, bowling alleys and all the stupid stuff. And so I'm reading the Gospels and I was like, oh, my God, all the religious leaders who he is speaking against, you know, reprimanding, calling out, that's us today. And so a lot of that and, you know, at that time in 99, I really began to ask them the question, like, what about at that time? We didn't call them the queer community, but really, you know, like, what is the church doing for the queer community? Nobody wanted to, you know, talk about it. I was I was insane person for wanting to address this issue and like having honest conversations about it. And so the discontent and the and the absolute conflict that I was starting to open my eyes to and see happening in the church. Um, so there was, I think from that time, again, ironically from my seminary education, from a conservative, very evangelical education. Um, but a lot of that began my journey of, of that. We're not doing this right. The church is, is missing the entire point of what Jesus was saying. And so I began on that journey for a long time and then, and then entered into engaging with more urban contexts and urban ministries. And I felt very much at home there. Again, I think because of my own traumatic upbringing, you know, um, really identifying with a lot of the issues um, and the whole idea of a theology from below where how can you really deeply understand God without having a perspective of suffering, of truly good understanding um, and theology of suffering and pain um, and really diving into all of that. So it was, again, a slow progress of, of dismantling and unpacking a lot of what the church structural system and evangelical world had set up to be um, and not being okay with all of that. So from that point, um, as an, I really dove into racial justice issues, you know, I want to say probably around 2012, 13, you know, around there really started to understand, oh, sh shit, white supremacy and colonization is a huge thing. And what does this all mean? And what have like, it's, it was this whole other 
layer of dismantling from what I'd already been starting to dismantle um, theologically, right? And now it was sociologically, like understanding all of that impact. And then 2016 happened. And I can say 2016 was my Lemonade album. And I was like, fuck all of this shit because 2016 came and I was like, there's no way that the church is going to support this man. And I was like, okay. You know, and again, as I said, you know, before we were starting the podcast, I was a twice Bush, you know, voter. The first time it was the abortion thing. I rode that abortion train hardcore, you know, and I, I, I've been the person who did marathon runs to support, you know, you know, pregnancy help clinics and talk to young women who I did it all. I was those characters in the movie saved where you talk to the girls who are coming in to get an abortion. And part of it was my friend too. She was a teen mom and, you know, she decided not to get an abortion and she had a beautiful little girl. And so she was part of the, like, here's a hopeful story of how we can, you know, we can help out these young women, et cetera. And, and so I was all on that train. I will say that first election um, with Bush versus Al Gore, I met my friend and she was on the campaign trail for Al Gore. And I was like, what are you doing here? Right. And so, and she started saying, I said, well, why are you supporting Al Gore? Because again, still in my mind, I was still very imprisoned with evangelical loyalty to that at that time. Um, and she said, because I feel like there are other issues that are very, very dire right now. And she named environmentalism as one of them. And I was like, environmentalism, like, what? Like, why are we needing to talk about understanding being good stewards of the earth? Like, I've never heard of that concept. And I started like diving into it. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's like an actual good thing about this. And so, you know, also starting that and and that's just kind of stuck with me. And then 9-11 happened, which, you know, for me, um, you know, I was going to school that morning. And again, as someone who grew up in New York, I mean, it, it hit home so hard. I hated that I was in LA. I hated that I was around people who had no connection to New York and no connection to the East coast. And I walked into my class and people were just talking and I just stood there and I was like, do I leave? Because all of you are acting like nothing has happened. And like, I just saw two planes fly into the world trade center. And like, I was there not six months earlier, like walking through the plaza, like all of this. And so, you know, and on top of that, like, which it was devastating, but also, you know, two weeks later, as things were sinking in and my classmates started talking about the horrors of it, but then villainizing Middle Easterners. And I'm like, also not cool because fucking America, like, are you serious? Like right. we kill, you know, like 1300 people died or I, whatever the number is. I feel like it changes all the time, but like, you know, so like in our history, two, right. 2000 people died or whatever. Like we literally bomb those numbers of people on a daily basis. So get off your American nationalist high horse, you know, and all of that. And it's not to say I wasn't a, a, an American nationalist. I cry at the Star Spangled Banner whenever it's sung in at the during the Olympics. I will go up to people in, at sports events and reprimand them for not properly taking their hat off and respecting the, the Pledge of Allegiance or Star Spangled Banner. Like I was that wanting to be white American person, right? And it was just a continual realization of all of the lies. And then when 
and weapons of mass destruction was a lie. I was like, oh my God, it's just all a fucking lie. And it's all for money. And it's all for oil. And like, I've been duped and I'm so mm. angry about it. Mm. And so that had already happened. Um, Carrie had run, right? Was he the one who ran against Bush? And oh, I, I really, kind of, yeah. yeah, I didn't really like Carrie. Um, he was wealthy and like so sleazy and on all that. I just, I was not, he didn't, he wasn't my jam. So I was like reluctantly voted and I was, I still was like kind of not fully out. And so I reluctantly voted for Bush twice. Um, And, you know, and then we got to, and then the housing market fell through. My mom got so hit hard with that. People's lives were affected. Enron happened. Um, The car, the auto industry, all of it. And Katrina happened. Like, it was just like, what are we doing? And it was so much dismantling my Republican upbringing that I was taught. And yet I'm so grateful for something like, uh, I think sophomore year, I took a civics class. My professor, he was the only Democrat on campus. Um, he was the mayor of La Mirada twice. I think he ran two terms and he, his first class, I will never forget it. We stood in the class and he said, okay, everyone stand up and we're going to do a test. And he said, do you think Jesus would be a Republican or a Democrat or you don't know? Um, and then we went through the whole semester going through public policy and comparing it to the gospels. Nice. And by the end of the semester, it was, okay, is Jesus a Republican, a Democrat or neither? And so the class shifted. I mean, we all kind of, I stood in the, I don't know, but you know, um, well, most of the class was the Republican. And by the end, I believe we had a majority of folks that said neither. Right. And so I'm grateful for those little seeds that were planted to help with the dismantling. But then when 2016 happened, it was like a culmination of all of it being put together and just all the shackles and all the blindfolds coming off. And I was like, I'm done. I'm just so done. Even as I still am grounded in hope for the church and all of that, really, it was, I think 2016 was the full-blown leaning in and accepting that the church, I knew it was fucked up, but I think that I, there were still like segments where I was like, but not that line, not this, not this area. Mm-hmm. And the fact that 85% of evangelicals, white evangelicals in particular, who I grew up, you know, in my career, ministry career, um, and white evangelical spaces were safe spaces for me as a woman leader, because the Korean space was very unsafe for me. This home that I considered to be the lighthouse um, leading the way for ministry was a deck of cards, was a house of cards. And mm. they were all lies. And that, you know, I mean, it. I. it's not like I didn't know it from 2008, day one where Obama is sworn in and all of a sudden Fox news and all the pundits are like, Obama needs to fix this economy that he's broken. I was like, he fucking swore in like two hours ago. Like, and then, <laughs> right. And so it, it like, it was all of that, but I, and the tea party rate rising up and, you know, everything, but I thought still in 2016, not Trump, you know, if Ted Cruz had won or if Chris Christie had won, like, you know, all of those people are still gross. Okay. But <laughs> they weren't Trump. 
right? And I was like, surely the choice is so obvious. And I am not, I'm not quiet about the fact that I hated Hillary. I hated that she was going to be our choice. Um, I wanted it to be Bernie. I was a hardcore Bernie fan. I was like, burn this shit down. Let's bring Bernie on. We need it. I wanted him to run as an independent. I was like, let's break this stupid two-party system thing. And I was so angry that they chose Trump. I'm like, now you're making me vote for Hillary, which I can't stand her. She's just as bad. And I was like, fine. You want your King Saul, you pieces of shit. Have your fucking King Saul and let's all have this burn down together, right? And that's where I was at. And I was like, yeah. just fuck the shit. Just just hand it over to God. Huh? With my lemonade album. And I was like, I don't care anymore. Fire me. I'm just done. I've had it. I, I have no holds barred. All the all the filters, I was just like, they're gone. They were they were gone. I this this is resonating in me a potential hope out of where we are right now in 2021 in that you described all these catastrophes, all these things that happened that were, went wrong, where the things you were kind of hoping in and the things that you knew was new to be true suddenly collapsed. And I think we're in another moment like that, where with the QAnon and with the the rallying around Trump and he's supposed to literally be this white savior and then people are like but wait it, it never materialized it never, it never happened. happened and they're forced to like deal with reality in yeah. some ways yeah we saw yeah. a national cult movement mm-hmm. we've seen little pockets of it right but this was a national cult movement yeah I find your experience so um, just just fascinating because I think a lot of times people think if you're, you know, I'm just going to say Democrats, right? We have Mm -hmm. two parties. But if you're a Democrat that you're, Mm -hmm. you know, not Christian or, you know, questioning your beliefs, we don't often hear the story of, you know, someone that was Republican and how you deprogrammed and really looked at you know, your beliefs, your faith, as it related to certain policies, you know, like, it's not just like people are just born one way. And like, you know, if you, if you are apparently, you know, if you love God, you're supposed to just automatically be one way. And if you're not, um, I think it's important. It's, it's important to hear that transformation that like, you know, we are so divided for very reasons, but I think there are a lot of people in your shoes that, are disappointed, you know, and had voted one way and then watched everything that you believed in and that you thought just come to be untrue or, you know, um, as, as you say with 20, 2016, the big, you know, WTF moment. Like, (laughs) (laughs) And people think that I'm like, a hardcore Democrat. I'm like, I'm not loyal at all. Like if a Republican comes forward, you know, at the end of the day, the Republican ideology, which is small government states rights, right? I mean, that's technically what they are supposed to be politically speaking. Like then they, right. They hopped on the baby issue and the guns issue and the anti-gay issue, like all right. The three, the three, the triad of their, their, their platform now is that but technically speaking if you actually understand politics what they want is small government and state rights i'm not opposed to that and i'm like if if a republican were to come forward as a nominee and 
would support policies that were not toxic and not harmful, were justice-oriented to help underserved, under-resourced communities, what rural and urban and you know, all of that, and in ways by which federally they would try to figure out how to give more rights to states so that states could feel empowered to serve those communities. If that was their platform, and there was this Democrat nominee who was from wealth and money with lobbyists, you know, supporting them, <clears throat> cough, cough, Hillary Clinton, you know, all of that, then I would in a heartbeat, I don't have any loyalty. So I keep trying to like, people are like, oh, you're such a Democrat. You're so, your soul is lost and praying for you and all that stuff. I'm like, <laughs> I don't give two shits. Like, you know, just as Jesus didn't give two shits, like all of this is stupid, human, dumb assery. Like we, you know, it's a power grab and yeah. Jesus doesn't fucking care what he cares about. What he taught us is how are we fucking making policies that are serving people who are underprivileged and under-resourced and underserved? That's the only thing that matters. So fuck your, your like church tax exemption. Like you just <laughs> fuck off. Yes. Like, I don't care. Like it's so dumb. You should not be getting tax exemptions. Like pay fucking yep. taxes like the rest of us. Ass hats. So yeah. Love it. I also probably say this because I'm not ordained, so... Yeah. I also can't get ordained because I have no I don't want to be loyal to any denomination. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. We can we can go off about that. Um yeah, no, like like I, I think everybody else has said I, I relate to your story so much because uh just starting I mean I got involved in politics kind of minimally whenever uh Bush was going into his second term in office and then with Obama and and all of this stuff. Um and that's especially with Obama's was really where I started to to I guess become disillusioned with the Republican Party because suddenly it wasn't about the policies it wasn't about the politics it wasn't about what he wanted to do it was about who he was or who the Republican Party thought that Obama was or wanted you to think who Obama was. And so it was this very jarring moment for me where suddenly I had to stop thinking, wait a second, uh, you know, a good Christian follows the Republican Party, period. And I had to start thinking, no, what what is what are they actually saying? What what are the actual platforms? What are the actual policies? And that's part of the reason why I hate the fact that Christian Christianity is associated with the Republican Party is the Republican Party doesn't have a platform. Like you look at the 2020 Republican National Convention, they do not have a platform. It's whatever Trump says, literally what the policy says. Um, and Christianity needs to stand up for something, right? Hamilton, uh, uh, what's his name? Lynn manuel Lin-Manuel Miranda says it in the musical Hamilton. Um, if you stand for nothing, what will you fall for? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly it. That's exactly where I'm at where, wait a second, if we're not standing for anything, then we're going to fall for everything. And that's exactly yeah. what we're seeing just over yeah. and over and over again. Um, but I digress. I, w- I want to just real quickly, I want to ask you about something you said earlier, like earlier tonight. Um, that's something that uh, I believe your grandma said, or, may- or maybe your mom, uh, she said to you, I don't care what you want to be. You're not white. Um, <laughs> I don't- 
And I want to die. Okay. And I want to dive into that just real quick because uh, I'm a first generation immigrant coming over from Guatemala. And something that my grandpa said, uh, even, I mean, geez, even up until the point after, like, after I got married, after I had my first kid, he was still saying, well, we didn't come to the United States for you to marry uh, some minority girl. Mm. He, over and over again, he would say, and my grandma would back him up on it. And my parents never said it. Um, but I think up to a point they believed it up until I was in high school, like maybe graduating from high school, where we came to the to the United States so that you would not marry another Hispanic girl or another minority girl. We came to the United States so that you would marry up is essentially what my grandparents were saying. And so that's just the 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 experience that you're describing there is so different from like what I experienced. And so just real quick, I want to, I want to, I want you to like dive into that, into what, cause, cause there's always tension there. Right. And so I just, I just want to dive into what the tension was between you and your, your mom when, when she said that, when she was saying these things to you. Oh, it's hilarious. Um, I, I feel like I always have a funny story about my mom at some question. So um, she, when was this? Probably in my early 30s when she still had high hopes for all the candidates that I could possibly be dating and my marriage potentials. Um, You know, after 35, the hope just, it's not a slow downhill. It's like rocket straight down, right? Cliff and clip off. So it had to be earlier, but maybe not even because anyway, she was doing the dishes. I was visiting her and she was doing the dishes. She comes running out of the kitchen, dishwashing gloves on and was like, I want you to know that it's okay if you marry a white person. And oh, wow. I, I was like sitting on the floor watching TV because Koreans, we sit on the floor, right? So I was sitting on the floor and I was reading a magazine watching TV and I look up at her and I was like, uh, okay. She's like, as long as he loves Jesus and he's, you know, really solid, good faith, it's okay. It's okay. He doesn't have to be Korean. And I was like, wow. Okay. And I I think a few years later had asked my dad that same question and my dad straight up, my dad is so quiet. He's, I believe I never tested him, but I believe he's an Enneagram five, very man, a very, very, so many few words. Okay. Um, he, he said to me, I would disown you if I married someone non-Korean. And I was floored because my dad never speaks adamantly about anything at all whatsoever. Um, So it was really interesting. I think ironically, even though I was aesthetically attracted to white men, obviously because of my desire to be whiteness, there was always for me the actual um wanting to marry a korean person um and so when i met my husband when we worked together um and so when i met him uh or my roommate came by and she was like oh is that your new coworker?" and i was like yeah and she's like oh he's cute and i was like he's white (laughs) 
it's not a candidate like in my book, right? Um, and so it took quite some time for me to realize that the men that I had dated, um, you know, being predominantly Korean, I don't think I was going to find the person who I wanted to really be with, which was somebody who could handle all of my fieriness without like squelching it, which a lot of Asian men have a hard time and so strong-minded and so opinionated and, you know, all of that. Um, And so it was hilarious because apparently to all of my friends, it was so obvious that I would not marry a Korean to everyone else except for me. Um, So, but it was hilarious. The first time we went, we went on our first date and we went to, or second date, we went to eat sushi. Um, I took him to all the Asian places, right? Because I had to vet him. Um, And so we went to eat sushi and I walked in, we were in little Tokyo and I felt so self-conscious. Like I walked in and I, I felt like all the eyes were on me and like, was being judged like oh you're that Asian mm. woman you're the Asian woman you're the typical mm. Asian woman which as an Enneagram social nine I hate that right I don't like being typical um so you're the tip also an INFJ but you're the typical Asian chick who is now with a white guy and I I hated it I hated it so much and I I had to do so much processing both on that front interracially um, that I was going to be with somebody who was not Korean. And then also as an older woman who was so proud to be single in her late thirties, early forties, you know, just so proud and was like pretty much set that I was going to be single for the rest of my life and be loud and proud about it. Right. Um, And so it was twofold of me having to just like figure and process that out that, okay, I'm not going to be with a Korean person and not even as once I got married and we started unpacking, you know, the conflicts that we would have or the confrontations that we would have, how Korean ingrained I was in so much of my thinking, my culture, the way that my relationships work, the way I dealt with trauma, my interactions with my mom. There's been so much gain that I've had, but also so much loss um, in in that and trying to re like not remake, but like transition into this new stage, this new era of I am no longer single. It took me forever. I remember I was at this women of color conference um, and Christina Cleveland was leading a a singles ministry thing. And I was already engaged. And I was like, can I please join? Because I haven't crossed the altar yet. I just, I want to be with my single gals. Like, I don't want to go to any of the other. One last time. (laughs) One last time, please. Let me just like, let me be part of group, this amazing group of strong single women. Um, and so, and it was, it was even spiritually, like I remember taking communion and I was kneeling. Um, and I, as I was praying, I was like, oh my gosh, Lord, we're, it's not going to be us two anymore. We're not going to be in this little secret club with you and I, there's going to be a man in this circle. Like what does that even look like? Right. So it was a lot of transition of that, but apparently my my mom was okay. And uh, when she first met him, when I brought him home, <laughs> the first thing she said after we closed the door, she's like, he's not like other white people. 
And I, I laughed. She's like, he's so soft. You know how there's like an energy to white people in Korean. It's called like chalaso, meaning know-it-all or like very stiff and very rigid mm. um, in, this is probably why, you know, systematic theology and fundamentalism is so prevalent in white culture and um, white Christianity. But like, she was just like, he's so soft. It's like, he's almost right. Like this spirit and energy about him, his chi was very, very like, just tender and sensitive and not at all this, you know, like Asians, we say this about, about white people. Like we don't know what you're actually getting, like what's behind all of that. And there's a distance. You don't feel this connection that you feel, you know, I feel with my black friends or my, you know, Latina friends or whatever. There's this like, okay, we're all, we're different, but we, we have this also somewhat understanding. Right. And I don't know if it's because he's from rural and he grew up, you know, not wealthy, and and so there's elements of it like his family his dad they're both his family is very connected to the earth as you know families that come from farming and and so they're they're very open he my husband had cancer um and holistically he they didn't do chemo or radiation and he healed um through alternative medicine so they're very open to acupuncture like all of that as a family like when i go home even though they're from kansas and from the midwest i don't I don't feel like I'm this foreign or outsider, like, oh my God, you know, I'm part of this weird white world that, you know, I, I don't feel connected to. So it's embracing. You feel like your culture, your, who you are is embracing yeah. instead of being essentially like washed. Right. I'm curious about um, your position in leadership at churches and stuff like that. Um, I encountered even as a white woman discrimination because I'm a woman um, in regards to worship leading and in other different positions that I had applied for, like within a Christian organization, because I would be working with pastors who are assumed male all the time, you know? So I'm curious as an Asian woman, if you, encountered a lot of that like in the different churches that you worked in or tried to work in or how did you deal with that so my first ministry job was great I was so supported I worked with seven other men it was wow. a huge team um we had I had Actually, no, I, I take that back. I originally co-pastored as a junior high um, middle school pastor. He quit and left because of the fact that he was a very hardcore John MacArthur follower and he could not handle that he was working with a woman. Um, yeah. So there was that part. I mean, we were, he was cordial to me. He didn't like, you know, disrespect me or anything like that. But I found out later and he, I found out from him because we were still friends or, you know, still interacting. We worked on a conference together for many years. And I think over the time, I just, it was about proving myself. Right. And so he apologized to me, said why he was uncomfortable, why he had decided to leave was part, part of it was because I was a woman. The other men on staff, very, very supportive of all the things. Um, very empowering. Um, 
that conference that we worked at, uh, you know, none of the men there were disrespectful in the sense of, I think if I were to be now, I would, I would be calling them out a lot more. Um, I was young. I was still also very bought into the misogyny. Women shouldn't get ordained. This is why I didn't get ordained for a long time. I wasn't sure if biblically, like if it was right. Um, but I was, smarter than them. I wrote better <laughs> curriculum than that. And so like, you know, I would, we would have them write these curricula, you know, pieces, and then I would have to rewrite all of it. I would literally spend weeks rewriting all of it, right. Oh to make it presentable. But for seven years, after seven years of hanging out, being the only woman, um, and there were five of them. And so then they would go and eat together because like we'd work and then they'd go eat together and hang out or go golf or do something. After seven years, they were like, wait, Irene, you have to come eat dinner with us. You're like, you know, where, why are you staying back? And it was like, wow, it took seven years to get into the boys club. Um, you know, and, and I told my friend, she runs the organization or runs the conferences. And I told her how about my experience in seminary, which is, um, so my seminary allowed women to be in the MDiv program. I was one in four women in the MDiv program. Um, but John MacArthur left our school because they allowed women into the MDiv program and started master's college. They hired a woman to be on staff as a professor and that they are not a biblical professor, but just a professor. Um, she was Christian ed. And then um, they allowed women into the MDiv and that was just satanic for John yeah, MacArthur. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to need you. I'm going to need you to repent for the bad word that you just said. You said the M word right there. MacArthur. <laughs> no, MacArthur. <laughs> And yeah. we just we just can't have that sort of language on this podcast. I'm terribly sorry. sorry. And I'm at sorry. that point, all the conservatives left the podcast. <laughs> yes. Hold of you to assume that any of them are still listening. <laughs> 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 it was, it was a line to be crossed. So yes. that was they, well. They, and again, here at the first fuck. <laughs> 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 um, you all gave me permission. I very yes, clearly asked. Exactly. Um, okay. So I, in my Asian-ness, again, still very obedient little girl, um, asking how much of myself I can totally be. So, right. Um, and it was, and I told my friend who was leading this conference, you know, I would sit in the lounge and it would be, oh, this is Pastor Dave and this is Pastor Tim and this is Pastor John. And if my presence was at all even acknowledged, it was like, oh, and this is Irene. And I would love to talk with people. And they're like, oh, you're, you're taking classes. Are you doing your MA? And I'm like, no, I'm in the MDiv awkward silence, right? And I just would not say anything after that. I would just look at them blinking, you know, the smug. Let that marinate a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I loved it. And, you know, I was good at preaching and I, all these things. And so, you know, it, it, it was, uh, it took a long time because I had such a chip on my shoulder and I very much was like wanting to be a tomboy. I loved just proving like all of it of like, I can fucking carry this heavy box. I can drive this 15 passenger van and do a fucking three point turn way better than you can. So don't fucking try to like mansplain to me how this is shit is done. Um, you know, like all the things as, as a youth leader in particular, I wasn't in children's ministry. I was youth leader, you know, 
Mm. which was just right on the, again, the border edge of what is allowed to be as a woman. Um, But the real youth leader, not a pastor, right? I was not. Oh, and some places now, even now, uh, they call me a, an evangelist. They don't call me a pastor. Oh my God. The evangelist. Um, Which is the title translation, I think in Asian um, languages, like even in Korean, we call it you're an evangelist. You are a spreader of the good news. Um, and so, you know, I, and then, but the, the climax came when I served at the church from hell, as I always call them when I do leadership training, um, I was going to have one of those. (laughs) Oh, gotta have one of those. So I, it was my full first full-time job. I was always a bivocational pastor because Korean immigrant churches don't have the budget because they want you to save their children's souls, but then won't pay you the money. Um, so I had to work full-time while taking school and doing, you know, a 30 hour, which equals basically 60 hour job, but being paid minimum wage. So I finally get this offer. It's a full-time job. I have a whole set of stories of my own journey with God attached to that. But for the sake of this story, I was hired full-time. They had problems with one of their pastors upstairs in the adult uh, departments. So they ended up uh, demoting everyone full-time who was still in seminary. And I was like, that's fine. I have one semester left. It was like a two unit course that I needed to take. And I was like, it's three months and then I'll get back and be full-time again. My friend who recruited me in uh, because of the demotion, he had been serving full-time two years doing seminary. He was a year out and he, that he was like, fuck this shit. And I tell him all the time, you bring me into the wolves, into the den of wolves, and then you leave me, you asshole. Right. (laughs) So then he bails after three months and we hire a new education pastor who oversees everything before I graduate. Okay. This man does not believe women should be ordained. Several reasons by which every week he would argue with me and my colleagues, who was the fifth and sixth grade uh, children's pastor. Number one, one of the reasons he gave women have menstrual cycles and it obstructs us from being able to serve. How did I find this out? That's a new one. I haven't heard that one. His wife wasn't uh, around one uh, Sunday and we were like, where is your wife? And he said, oh, she's at home, you know, woman issues. And he said, see, that's another reason why women shouldn't be ordained. And both my friend and I looked over at him and we, she was like, she was younger than I was by this point. It had been 10 years of me dealing like 12 years of me dealing with all of this shit. So I'm like, I don't even give a fuck. Right. She was like younger. So she was like, what did you just say? And he starts backpedaling. He's like, I mean, you know, and I was like, right. Because men don't get ill. Men don't have reasons for why they shouldn't, you know, are incapable of serving like fully into their best. So he said that he would argue with me. He said, you know, when I did my radio show and like all these people would call in um, speaking about how women shouldn't be ordained and shouldn't be pastors. Do you know who were the majority of people who called in? They were women. When women aren't even in support of, you know, people, uh, women getting ordained. And I was like, yeah, Women were also against suffrage, okay? The just because you have a majority of people doesn't make it right. You know who else like the majority decided on what should happen? The majority decided to kill Jesus, okay? So what the hell kind of argument is that? <laughs> was like majority doesn't mean right, dude. The best oh, Sunday school so lesson ever. <laughs> and so infuriating. So 
I got to work under him for three years. Yay. And I told the junior high pastor at that time, "Mm -hmm." I wanted to stay and like graduate my freshman kids. And then I was like, and then I'm out of here. Like I stuck by for my students. Right. And, um, so then my junior high pastor, he and I, he was griping because he was so like tired from, again, having to work full time because he needed health insurance because we didn't, we were only half time because we still, again, they didn't actually end up promoting me right back to full-time status. So um, he was like, so tired. He's like, why don't they just make us full-time? And I was sitting there listening to him ranting. I was like, I'm really sorry. You're not getting a full-time position because of me, because if you get a full-time position, you're only the middle school pastor. I have to get a full-time position and he's just not going to be okay with that. And he was like, no way. That's not the reason. And I was like, Oh, really? You watch two weeks after I leave two weeks out the door, you're going to get a full-time offer on the table. So then I got fired. Guess what happens? Two weeks later, he gets a full-time offer on the table. So that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And I was like, I'm done with church ministry. And I began to look into nonprofit work. And I was like, oh, my gosh, God is doing so much work for the world in other ways besides (laughs) the bullshittery that is church. As in secular. Secular Doing doing good work, doing the Lord's work. See? (laughs) So... I, I do, I biblically understand the church and the bride and all of the like blah, blah stuff. Okay. But the church right now is fucked up. <laughs> so, um, I just, you know, I, I want the church to get its shit together, but, and I know there are local churches that are doing amazing work on the ground. Um, and I'm friends with a lot of pastors who are serving the city, um, in ways again, from below in ways by which, you know, they're making change happen. So I'm not shitting on all churches. I'm just shitting on the 85% of conservative evangelical churches that voted for Trump, whether you are white or non-white. Right. I think, I I think the, I think that's the, the underlier there is that it's not globally all Christians, all churches everywhere. It's specifically this uh, undercurrent of Western evangelical Christian churches where honestly, like I, as a pastor who is, going through ordination right now, who I I am in a master's program for my MDiv, I'm ashamed to be a Western Christian because of a lot of those churches, a lot of those Christians, despite the fact that my church, I fully believe, is doing a great job of what you just said, that like from the ground up, supporting community initiatives, supporting the people at the ground level. And I think uh, all of our churches here represented are doing that. And so we're not talking about those churches. We're talking about the ones who are like, no, 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 we can give to the North American Mission Board. We can give to the Lottie Moon uh, Missions Offering. We can give to World Changers. We can give to those people and those organizations to go overseas and save those people who really need Jesus and completely forgetting about the issues that we have here at home. And so I just want to I want to say that for for all of our listeners out there, we're not necessarily uh, shitting on your church. 
we're it's it's the overall culture right here that but we're we talking. have to talk about the issues the very real mm-hmm. issues totally. that are plaguing exactly. all you know it's it's hard to be associated with christianity as a whole because this is this is the example that the world is seeing and then if we're wondering why people are leaving the church right because they don't feel safe and they're being harmed and people are, are voicing that i mean that's kind of why we came together and did this podcast was to voice the issues that we were seeing, not because we just wanted to spend, you know, hour, two hours complaining. Right. But because we have hope that, and we want to see the church get better. And I share these experiences because like people have these stories of trauma. And the thing is, what gets me so irate about all of it is that these are solvable problems. These aren't lofty ideals I that I'm not saying okay you know you have to fully agree 100% with these beliefs or views that I have like okay you you just need to do the work to really unpack and process what you are holding as a sacred cow right and that's that's what it is and I I I feel like you know I appreciated what you said Sarah about like I was in that camp to hold these things that I was taught to be sacred but it isn't sacred like what is sacred are Jesus's teachings of what it means that we are again serving the least the loss and the last right about what it means that we are mobilizing and helping those who are voiceless who need our help and not in a white savioristic kind of way but as a community together because as paul says and i know you know some newer younger a lot of you know theologians shit on paul but i'm like don't shit on paul because if you actually unpack paul's letters there's so much about freedom in there and so much about grace and so much basically exemplifying and amplifying what Jesus is teaching. Like, as Paul says, if one element of your body is hurting, then we're all hurting. So like, why the fuck are you protecting a pedophile priest? Or why the fuck are you protecting these like people who are stealing money from the church? And why are you protecting a misogynistic leader who is like basically shitting on a whole people group of Asian Americans and calling them the China virus and shitting on women and saying that you can grab them by their pussy. Like, it's just... Mirror, reflection, examination, like dismantle it, process it, figure it out. Why is this cow sacred to you? Why are you going to lose like so many things because you can't process and figure out and like be open minded that you could possibly be wrong about the fact that women shouldn't be pastors, about the fact that the queer community should be serving and allowed to be part of the church community. Why you have the sacred cow that you think that babies and unborn babies are the be all end all. I am not for abortion, but like then fucking support policy and do things that would decrease abortion. This isn't right. Like there are ways for you to help like protect these unborn babies that you are thinking of, but like understand the research. Abstinence does not work. Hello? Like it just doesn't. I'm a youth leader. I've been a youth leader for a long ass time. Fucking it doesn't work. Okay. So I remember I had this one um, and I know we're going long, but I just, there's this one after I got fired um, and I, my high school, my, the church from hell, the part of the pain of that is because I feel like for the first time when I was doing that high school ministry, I, I had been dismantling so much of this that for the first time I was really preaching from this, this 
center of freedom, like what it actually meant to be free and to be in a space of, of loving and following Jesus from this actual space of grace. Like I just had spent so much time dismantling it. I remember speaking at one camp, you know, as I have this whole series that I, I preach about um, all the time. And this one senior kid, he was Chinese American, and he was giving up his, he was giving his testimony. And he said, this was the first time I cried at a retreat because I realized so much, so deeply Jesus's love. And I wasn't crying because I felt ashamed and guilty about who I am. And I was like, yes, that's exactly it. Right. And so like that last ministry that I did, you know, every single kid who was struggling with smoking, which was the big demon thing for, you know, kids to do when you're in youth ministry or whatever. Like I knew every kid that was struggling with smoking and every week they would come in and they were like, they would be like, I messed up. You know, I got into a fight with my parents. and was so angry. And I took a smoking. I was like, that's okay. Did you smoke today? Yeah. And they're like, no, I haven't. I was like, well, then we'll start again today. Today is day one. Right. And just walking with students for the first time, really without any, any remote whiff of any kind of shame or guilt trip and saying, I'm going to walk with you because we're all, and I didn't say this to kids, but really my philosophy is we're all fucked up. And so like, let's do this together. Right. Um, and so after after I get fired, I'm like watching Oprah, the repeat of Oprah. This is before like, you know, TiVo and, and DVRs and shit like that. Um, and, you know, all the cable online stuff. So I'm watching Oprah. It's 1 a.m. and it's a repeat on, on the TV. And she's featuring a girl um, who was a sophomore in college. Her name was Jennifer and I forget her last name, but she was going to a party with her um, girlfriend, two girlfriends, and they're in the car and they're at a stoplight and a high school boy was driving home drunk from a party and slammed his car into her car. Car catches on fire. Her two friends die and she's burned fourth degree. Um, She looks like a ball, like a candle wax. So she is no eyelids. Her father um, is a single parent. Her father has to put eye drops in her eyes physically every 30 minutes. Um, He has to dress her because her fingers are all melted. She had nubs of fingers. Um, it, It was beyond heartbreaking, right? Um, no dry eye. I was sobbing as I was hearing Oprah's asking her, do you wish you died that day? She's talking about how she's still so loving life and you know, all this. It was so traumatic. The mom, the kid is in jail, okay, for involuntary manslaughter. He's serving five to 10 years, young white boy. And the mom is on the show. And she, Oprah says to her, if you could tell parents across the country anything, what would you tell them? I mean, and the mom had come out because she wanted to apologize. She couldn't even get through the apology. She's like in front of this girl, Jennifer, and she's just sobbing and saying, she's trying to get through her. I am sorry that my son did this to you thing. And as she's answering, she says, Oprah, I raised my kid in a black and white world where it was all do's and don'ts. And if I could go back, I wish I could tell him. Obviously, I don't approve of you drinking. You're underage. There are decisions that need to be made that obstruct you, etc. But if you find yourself in trouble, just pick up the phone and just call me. I won't ground you. We'll have a talk. We'll figure it out together. And I wish I had raised my son like that. And I was screaming, 
screaming in my room. That's it. That's it right there. That's the gospel message. That's what we're trying to help young people to do. It's not about your fucking, you know, imperatives by which you are, you know, needing to make sure you establish with a rule with a, you know, iron fist, what the rules are. We don't fucking know what the rules are. That's why Jesus said two basic rules. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Two rules. That's it. Right. And so like all of it falls under that. And I remember this one pastor, he was saying, um, he was saying how he was trying to get a, a, a church here in the Bay area. And he was trying to really uh, dive into this whole series that he wanted to do, but it was all this very shame-based type of thing. And he had this Holy spirit moment. He says, I can only chalk it up to that where he started really diving in that every single imperative in the Bible is founded on an indicative, an indicative of I am God. Therefore, like all of it is that, right? And we don't do that in the church. All we do is we focus on the imperative. We focus on the fact of what you shouldn't be doing. And oh my God, you're doing that. And so like, you should be ashamed of yourself. And, you know, and I know it may sound like I'm shaming you because we're not serving the poor and we're not serving, you know, all of these things, but I'm not saying that out of shame or to shame you, but it is a call. It's a call to remember that everything in scripture is based on this indicative, this magnanimous, gracious, loving, merciful, compassionate God whose heart breaks for all of those who are suffering. Like, how can we embrace that indicative? And from there, you don't do drugs, not because it's sinful or it's bad for you, but for the community, for yourself. My husband and I were just, I was ranting to him today about this. Like, I don't care. Be into fuzzy porn, be into your drugs, like whatever fetish you have that floats your boat, right? It's about what is it doing to affect the community? Was it a doing right. to affect the body? What is it doing? Like, it, that's why, you know, we are looking Looking at these questions and in that, if you as a woman, if you feel that you as a woman are causing harm because you have boobs and a vagina and that's the thing that's obstructing, like, okay, let's have real talk and let's talk about that. But men have penises and men have chest hair and men have all these things too that are also like tempting. So like fucking the lust thing is a mutual all gender shit thing that you can like have any excuse for. Right. And so like, let's unpack that and let's dive into it, but like really socially figure it out because all of this is just all the church, the history of the church is focusing on the imperative when everything, if you read about in the Bible is all about what's happening, what God is calling us to do based on an indicative of, I am God. I am this, I am this loving merciful, generous being that sacrificed everything so that you all can understand what it means to sacrifice for one another. And that's what we're talking about, right? That's a whole sermon. <laughs> that's a whole word. I'm blessed. I need to take up an offering. <laughs> Join me in uh, this time of worship. We're going to sing Holy Spirit. Welcome here tonight. Oh, God. As long as we only do Father. two verses. Two verses. <laughs> I mean, the ver- the two song rounds. only has one verse and then the so chorus and the bridge. Rounds. So yeah. two rounds. Two rounds. Yeah. Two rounds. Two rounds of fifty each. We're pulling the we're pulling the mic. And then that's it. That's it. Oh. That's this is this has really been powerful. Um 
I again just I'm so appreciative of how you bring your whole self mm-hmm. and you literally give us all permission to like look within and look and see like what our stuff is um and figure this out because you know like I was thinking while you were talking earlier like this isn't some people would hear this and go oh this is just all about how republicans are bad and democrats are good it's like no like everybody has some stuff to work out republican democrat independent we all have stuff to work out if we're male female non-binary trans we have stuff to work out if we're in a black church a korean church a white church we have stuff and we can call stuff out from a place of hope. Yes. Like and that is that's, to work. that you yeah. can hold on to that. You can run on and write yeah. the vision. <laughs> There's a reason the first sin in the Bible is hiding. Mm. Because it's the first thing humans want to do. We want to cover ourselves up. And I keep saying, where's the naked place? You got to go to the naked place. Take your fig leaves off. Take all the things that you're protecting. I mean, when we say sacred cows, it's really that, right? It's this inability that people don't want to go to the naked place. It's a hard place. I get it. But if you have a hard time with it, strip down naked, literally, physically, and start to pray before God because it's vulnerable. It's weird. It's disconcerting. But if you physically do it, maybe you can start to mentally and emotionally, spiritually begin to do it because without going to the naked place as leaders, as believers, as volunteers, as servers, like then we're just all fronting. We're just Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of people trying to do this Christian thing with a bunch of fig leaves all over ourselves. And that's not what God calls us to do. And I'm definitely not perfect, right? I fuck up all the time. Like, I love that I have friends who are like, no, Irene, that was wrong. And it's so hard. I want to justify myself. I want to not apologize. I don't want to face my mistakes. I'm a nine. In my healthiness, I integrate to a three. I don't like making mistakes. I want to be the best at what I am. You like what I do, right? And who I am. But that's what Jesus calls us. That that's it's every day. Am I waking up and being in the naked place? And even in my anger, you know, I just preached about this, the Good Samaritan. I am in my anger every day having to examine what's my actual intention? What's my actual motivation? Am I calling out this because of my desire to join a platform? Because it's the right things to say? Like, you know, you get caught up even in the justice calling of it, like, the stench of humans, the stench of my own pride and my own need to be establishing what I believe is right. I have to examine that every morning. Is that call that I'm doing indicatively based in a compassionate love? Really, am I saying all this in hope? And I have to check myself because sometimes I get swept up. Oh God, it was so hard the last four years. I was filled with so much anger and so much hate. And every day it was coming to the altar and saying, I don't know what to do with this God because I'm so fucking angry. And I, I, I'm so disappointed and I'm so frustrated and I so want to give up on everything. But is that the call? Is that what you are asking us to do? What does it mean that you want us to burn? And not saying that burning it down isn't good. It's to say, 
are motivations to wanting it to burn down okay? Am I right before God? Am I in this naked place okay? That I'm not hiding behind fig leaves and God is asking, where are you as God is searching for me? There it is. Right. Um, We should probably wrap up. Um, we should have you share with us any places that we can find you, any places we can follow you, any ways we can support what you're doing. What's, uh, what's the best place to keep in touch with you? So all social media is Irene M as in Michelle Cho. Um, my mom thought I was going to be a boy, so she was going to name me Michael. So my middle name is Michelle. Um, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm the rawest and the realest and the most confrontationally upfront um, on Twitter. I'm a bit more reflective on Facebook and Instagram. It's kind of a 50-50 of a lot of fun and more personal stuff happening in my life and also some justice stuff. Uh, My company is called findingtheinbetween.com. We're going to basically start a subscription based training where you are going to be able to process all things. It's not just going to be one directional where you're listening to folks. I feel like we have a lot of resources um, such as this podcast and others and webinars, but really wanting to provide a space where you can learn with others and have um, an actual professional, somewhat professional person on the ground who's done the work, leading the conversations, guiding, you would have homework assignments um, and peer-to-peer learning and all of that. So we're going to create that kind of learning space. Um, So look for that. And then also we have a one-year certificate program um, for leaders who work with young people in predominantly urban contexts. So if you're in a context where you, um, where that's underserved, underrepresented um, and under-resourced, and it could be rural, it could be urban, um, kind of whatever you define that to be. It's, uh, urban is still somewhat of a pseudo catch-all, even though it's problematic, I, I know, um, with all the demographics and shifts and gentrification and all the lovely things that are happening. Um, so it's a whole lot, other episode. Yeah, it's a whole other episode. Um, but yeah, so if you wanted to sign up, you could get the newsletter at findingtheinbetween.com. Please keep your arms, hands, and other limbs inside the vehicle at all times. We are cleared for takeoff.